Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student, back for another podcast. This time, a little bit smaller group. Uh, Cam, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm the only one today. My name's Cam Meekum. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. And I'm Kent Roundy. I'm a psychiatrist at the Utah State Hospital, and this is focused on bath salts today. Bath salts, yes. Interesting. They're always interesting. All these topics are interesting. But this one, I, I didn't know where this would take us. I didn't have any idea. Well, at the end of our last podcast, we kind of determined that we wanted to uh, focus in on, on uh, one drug, uh, bath salts, because we figured it was going to be maybe a little bit more straightforward. But we found that it was much more complex uh, than we initially anticipated, which is what's really fun about these. It's been a lot of fun. So I want to go back to the 14th century. All right. And somewhere in the Middle East on the Horn of Africa, people have started to chew on a plant. Yes, the cot plant. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. What is there to know about it? So from our reading and some of the articles that, that uh, I was able to look at, the cot plant uh, has been known... Uh, in this region uh, for its medicinal purposes, specifically in helping to uh, gain energy, focus, uh, if you chew on it and enough of it, maybe a little bit more euphoria than, uh, than others, um, but has been used in that region for, you know, for some time. Cathinone appears to be the psychoactive substance in cut. And the World Health Organization said, hey, cathinone's a problem, but chewing on cot doesn't seem to be. Help me understand that. So I kind of think of that of this very similar to, and you might have to correct me here, but some of the, the plants uh, in uh, Central and South America, um, I forget the, the name of the plant, but it's essentially the, the plant that provides cocaine uh, that uh, many people can chew on this to help with the, uh, the elevation and headaches and things. And so in terms of chewing on this cot plant, um, you're not being delivered, you know, the synthetically derived um, concentrated form of the active ingredient. It's something that will allow you to slowly absorb, um, you know, some of these active forms and help you to be able to maybe modulate more than anything uh, some of those effects. My understanding is that the cot, the plant that cot comes from, or the cot plant, um, those leaves that you chew on, mm -hmm. they're really only good for a little while. As soon as those dry out, cathinone, the active substance, starts to break down into metabolites that simply don't act the same way. Does it, that sound familiar? Yeah, that was that was my understanding too. And so it's it's almost like picked from the ground right into your mouth. Uh, type of thing um, where, you know, maybe with some other metabolites you might be able to, uh, to let them sit out for a little bit. So this cathinone molecule been played with quite a bit. Let's go back, let's go forward from the 1400s when uh, early records show that cot was being used, um, you know, locally, grab a, swig, uh, a sprig and chew on it kind of thing. Uh, let's, let's fast forward to the 1920s when we got the first synthetic cathinone derivatives and they seem to kind of what was it the article said they were repurposed right these these synthetic uh, these synthetic analogs or synthetic 
um, molecules mm-hmm. synthesized from cathinone. Uh, they were uh, used initially, I think, in the Soviet Union, mephedrone, mm-hmm. initially used for treatment of depression. Yeah. Um, makes some sort of sense as a stimulant. It's, uh, we're going to learn a little bit more about how it works in the brain, but it mm-hmm. looks like it affects dopamine transport uh, reuptake, or DAT, uh, NET, mm-hmm. norepinephrine reuptake transporter, and... Plus or minus serotonin. <laughs> serotonin, right, plus or minus, that's a great way of saying it, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. So uh, the Russia, where this was used, becomes the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and uh, then the Soviet Union breaks apart, and COT doesn't really leave some of the satellite countries. Mm, yeah. It's a drug of misuse in that area. And then something seems to happen in about 2009. Yeah, so what was interesting in the articles is uh, it kind of broke out 1989 after uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, but then kind of disappeared and kind of stayed relevant, but under the radar. But then uh, we saw many reports uh, specifically out of Europe, out of the UK, where people were using this substance and getting a high, but also having some severe uh, psychoactive uh, events and and even death in some situations, uh, cardiac arrest um, and, uh, you know, other other forms of, of, you know, some maladaptive features. Um, And so kind of that the alarm flag was raised uh, in uh, several articles. I would say, and I, I kind of went through and looked year by year in you know, 2009, 2010, and then this massive uh, uh, increase in the number of ar- articles written in 2011, kind of calling for these cathinones to be uh, scheduled uh, as scheduled one drugs here in the US, I believe the UK, uses them as uh, category B or even category A drugs. And that's, I, I don't, different nomenclature, yeah, yeah. I, I don't understand much about that, but um, I, there was a big push to make sure that these drugs could not be easily accessible. Uh, and if they were, that there would be some hefty uh, legal ramifications because of that. Some of the things that I liked reading about that informed me about this big process that was going on. This, this had a, uh, an, epidemiolo- an epidemiological approach to it. It had a legal approach to it. There were all of these different factors that came into play in this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, the Prosser article that I think is probably one of the articles that I'll link in this podcast, yeah. tells this story about how a few years before 2009, cocaine was quite pure in uh, England and then very quickly, by 2009, it was 60% pure. Then by shortly after this, it drops to about 20%. And I might have those years off just a little bit. And so people, they make it sound as if people are looking for a a replacement for cocaine, Mm -hmm. right? Or for cocaine and for probably amphetamines. Mm -hmm. And one of the other very interesting aspects of this story to me was that the way that people avoided the um, problems associated with uh, what medications are are treated with this scheduling, mm-hmm. right? Is that they sold these as bath salts, as food plant, never meant to be used as a bath salt, never meant to be given yeah. to a, a, a plant, um, and yet people were taking these, hoping that they would have some sort of 
um, intoxication that was similar to the intoxication experienced with other stimulants. Absolutely. And, and to a very naive first year and second year medical student, I got very confused about this idea of bath salts. Um, but, uh, you know, thankfully I've kind of come to a better understanding of why it's been, ca uh, been called that. Uh, many retailers locally as well as over the internet would market these substances even with tags that said not for human consumption to make it appear as though that they you know they were some other type of uh, substance or, or some other type of product. We're clearly not a drug of abuse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? And well, somehow that was important. And I didn't understand this. Somehow that's important in terms of the legal implications of this. Yeah, and I, I didn't get much into that. I might have to uh, delve into some legal resources that I have to further understand the implications. But uh, really what it came down to is that they were falsely marketed uh, and they were essentially, you know, purchasing or, or exchanging goods under the guise of, you know, totally reputable products um, <laughs> over the internet. And even being, one of the articles says that even being uh, shipped through, you know, postal services, U.S. postal services and things like that. So I, I was um, paying attention to how this spiked as well. So if you, there, there are a couple of things that the articles talked about, things I wasn't tracking before this. For example, mm -hmm. Google Trends called something else in 2011. This is a Google tool that allows you to look at relative amounts of searches in comparison to other searches, right? And apparently the relative increase in searches for um, bath salts went up fairly dramatically. At the same time, a lot of different articles talk about the changes in poison control center phone calls going up from a couple of hundred a year in in the year, uh, what, 2009 yeah. to 6,000 to 7,000 within a couple of years. So there's this dramatic change in, in the intoxication and poisoning events associated with this and the searches and the interest. And, and as terrible as this is that this has happened, it's kind of remarkable to be able to see at this point, 10 years uh, or so later, kind of the amalgamation of all of this big data, uh, you know, all of this information, being able to see this almost now looking back in real time. Um, and uh, one of the case reports that we'll probably mention here soon out of Michigan, you know, the, the state of Michigan was almost under like high alert that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, if any of their hospitals even remotely had something close to what appeared as a quote unquote bath salts intox intoxication, they wanted to make sure that their center of disease control and other state agencies were on board and ready to respond because they wanted to track this, they wanted to get to the bottom of what has been going on. Yeah, there was a great report in, in the MMWR, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. Mm -hmm. A fascinating report talked about how they went to the stores, they took these branded bath salts out, um, confiscated them, they made it uh, illegal to have the, to sell them further in the state. They did that based on some public health laws that they were able to implement. Yeah. And that description of how they went about that was also very interesting to me. Well, I, th I think it's a great case study for anybody in medicine, but also in, you know, largely in, in public health. And as a, a, hopefully a future emergency medicine doc, that's definitely one of the things that, that I'm interested in is because those are the type of patients that I would be treating. I would make I would want to make sure that my population or you know the residents of my area uh, are well informed and if anyone is at risk, 
um, what we could do on a public health basis in order to help to support these people. And I think public health is probably the way that this was sure. best addressed at, at this point. Yeah. Um, case presentation. Yeah. Now, now that we've started in the 14th century, we've made it through synthesis of a various number of these bath salts. Let's talk about case presentation. And I'll start off with a comment from one of the articles I read. This, I think, was put together by a psychiatrist who, I, who talked about the experience they had in their hospital. And uh, he said something that I, I have grown to appreciate after doing this series of podcasts with you, Kim. He said, forget about a drug screen. It won't help. I mean, not only was that in the text, it was like there's this great big heading at the top of this article that this uh, this uh, physician wrote. Yeah. Um, so, the point is, this is a clinical diagnosis. Absolutely. As as difficult as uh, as it is, and as much as we would want to run a simple uh, urinary tox screen or a blood tox, uh, that's not going to necessarily help us in this situation. So I'll, I'll get into that here in just a little bit. So. Classic presentation for these people. Uh, I think the median age for one of these articles was anywhere between you know 19 and 55. Around the vast majority of them being in their mid 20s. So range was, range, range was, was big, big, but the the mostly more focused, mostly 20 year olds. Yeah, mostly mid 20s. More often males than females that would uh, walk in with a wide variety of different symptoms. I think classic sympathomimetics. Someone's agitated. Um, you know, aggressive behavior, uh, hypertensive, uh, tachycardic with rapid breathing, um, who might not respond to your initial doses of benzodiazepines to help calm down. Um, other features uh, that would be more classic with the uh, um, maybe the dopaminergic receptors would be, you know, euphoria and um, kind of the, the MDMA style of. Um, love, sex, rock and roll type of thing. Everything's great here. Um, all the way to, you know, even some of the PCP style um, presentations where you are, you know, these people could be massively psychotic or just, you know, acutely Very psychotic. agitated. Agitated. You know, agitated and psychotic. I was trying to look for the comments. So, so there's, uh, there's a little bit of a difference between how our emergency room physicians seem to view patients coming in and the complaints that the patients had coming into the emergency department. For example, um, in the uh, Prosser article, they gave a list of symptoms that were reported, and those include CV symptoms, ENT symptoms. Um, I thought nose burns was kind of an interesting symptom, yeah. and, and epistaxis, tinnitus or tinnitus. <laughs> I don't know how to, how to say that. Do you? I've always I've always said it tinnitus, but I was uh, I was reprimanded and saying uh, and was told that it's tinnitus. Um, I am a conscientious conscientious objector in this. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, GI symptoms: uh, anorexia, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, erectile dysfunction, and increased libido at the same time. I don't know how that works, but it could. Yeah. Um, arthralgias. Headaches, seizures, bruxism, um, formication, bugs, hallucinations of yeah. bugs, right? Which we've talked about classically with uh, um, methamphetamine. Sh uh, rashes. Mm -hmm. One of the ones that stuck out to me on this list was the methadrone stink. 
there might be a body order associated with this, but I didn't see that listed by the emergency room physicians. The emergency room physicians are looking at something very different in comparison. It looks like um, this CV kinds of things that you were talking about, blood pressure, pulse, um, both being elevated generally. Again, not malignant hypertension in most cases, mm -hmm. simply elevated, yeah. right? Uh, temperature quite often, and then CK elevations, rhabdo, couple of cases of uh, acute renal failure, um, hyperreflexia, mono, uh, myoclonus, those kinds of things start to show up. But as far as like this really clear one kind of picture, it's not there. Yeah, and, and I think the difficulty in that lies with several things. Uh, concentration or the amount taken um, and then also what derivatives of these bath salts are being ingested. We'll probably get into a little bit more detail here soon about how these different derivatives act differently on different receptors, at least in, in small part. And so whether the concentration of one is higher than the other or, you know, it's balanced or, or there's a presence of one, but none of, you know, several others, it, it could, it just varies widely. Very challenging. Also, one of the things we talked about with PCP shows up here. If you remember, we talked about PCP being a, a substance of misuse that had multiple substances in the urine drug screens. Mm -hmm. And in the case of um, the bath salt intoxication, you see things like alcohol, tobacco, MDMA, cocaine, cannabis, and so forth. And, and the I think it was the Prosser article yeah. said something very, very interesting. After it listed all of those, it said, in addition to an extensive list of other drugs. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's already a pretty good list, but in addition to <laughs> an more. extensive <laughs> list of more. And then the other thing that was, you know, they, they, they referred to or referenced one other case series where one of 17 people in the case series didn't have something else on board. So pretty common to have something else on board, at least at least around 80% of the, the time, it looks like, uh, based on their summary of the data, Prosser and, his, and their group. Yeah, and I don't know what it is about this certain drug that it is usually taken with others because, I mean, you can look at uh, even alcohol or, or marijuana and, you know, you could easily see it just be the only drug on board or the only uh, toxin on board. But I, I, I'd be curious to know why it is that, you know, there's it's usually poly... Uh, pharmacy, if you will. <laughs> that's uh, uh, to use the term loosely. That, that's here. This drug is taken a couple of different ways. Yeah. So most of the, I mean, it can really be uh, used widely. So I believe again, it was the Prosser article that had mentioned uh, keys. So keys, it's, yeah. it's uh, you know taking a, a, a key, getting some of the powder, and sniffing it. They even gave us a... Insufflating. Insufflating is the use that they were. Yes, I, I like that word. I had to look it up. Yeah, they uh, they even gave us, uh, if I remember, a conversion factor, three to four keys, or excuse me, five to eight, quote unquote, keys per gram. So just in case you were wondering for... How uh, many keys in a how gram? How many keys in a gram. So a key is not a kilo in this uh, no, case. I no, think it's that's actually a physical key. Physical so. key. Um, but then you also smoking... Uh, IV uh, injection. Mucous membranes. Mucus, yeah. Any of the mucous membranes were mentioned. And then something called bombing. Did you read about bombing? So we had talked, uh, I, I think I had come across this. What patients do is that they get kind of a, almost a pile of the drug. Powder, yeah. Of the powder. And then they put it in like tobacco paper 
and then ingest it. And supposedly it's it's to help uh, maybe decrease or it's more long acting that way, if I'm thinking of it correctly. Um, a little slower, a little slower onset, onset, a little longer duration, yeah. I think. Yeah. So. Um, 50-50. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, before we go to 50-50, one of the other things that I noticed was that there were case reports of people who were using multiple delivery systems for an, what sounded like one intoxication event. So somebody might take something IV, I suspect, then do bombing where they wrap the the powder in the tobacco paper and they would have an immediate onset, then a, dura a longer duration yeah. with maybe a you know, some peaks later on. I, I don't fully understand it, but I suspect that there's some thinking about half-lives that went into the way that that was used in the multiple pathways. That's that's what my suspicion would lead me to as well. You, I think from the Prosser article it had said that usual onset between three and five minutes with IV, but then only lasting for up to 30 minutes, whereas with other, you know, ingested routes like bombing, so to speak, onsets anywhere between I think it's at 15 to 20 minutes to 45 minutes, but lasting several hours. And so... It's hard to be more specific. I mean, we can talk about supportive care mm -hmm. in an emergency room setting, but that assumes that somebody has come in with a certain kind of bath salt. Yeah. Um, we can talk about people sleeping that off and just watching. We can talk about Ativan for agitation. The, the approach, I think, is driven by the clinical presentation. It's definitely driven by the symptoms, I would say. The reason this is so complicated seems to be that this cathinone um, precursor molecule can have a number of different substitutions. Depending on the substitution it has, you get something that looks more like MDMA or something that looks more like methamphetamine. Does that sound right? Yeah, absolutely. All the literature that we have gone through supports the fact that depending on which one of these substrates that's used, the presentation is going to be different. I, I focused on three main ones, MDPV, uh, uh, methylone, and, uh, oh gosh, and, and then Me methadone. Me I think... It, I think it was methylone and then methadone, something along Not those lines. Not methadone, because that's the opioid, but oh, methaphone. No, methaphone, methaphone, excuse P me. Yeah. Yeah. M-E-P-H, yeah. It, it looks like people that have used both um, the bath salts, the cathinone derivatives, and uh, methamphetamine, it, in one comparison, it's about 50-50 what people like best. And I think that gets down to the type of cathinone derivative that's used and the effect on the receptors and what that person finds to be um, to increase energy, mm -hmm. empathy, and openness was one kind of description. But again, I think that's probably the bath salts that are more like MDMA yeah. or ecstasy, right? Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that just a little bit more. Let's go to the article that you mentioned, and I think this was uh, not the Simmons article, this was the Bauman article, yes, right? Yes, yeah. Man, I had a tough time getting through that article. I had to back up, read that like four times, <laughs> pull out my basic chemistry textbooks to make sure I understood some of the words. Yeah. So, um, what, 
we talked about cathinone being broken down rapidly, mm -hmm. but then there's uh, methcathinone, and I I don't know where that sits anymore. I used to think it was the same thing as meth as meth methadone, yeah, or methadrone. Methadrone. You can see how, as a as a listener, it might be interesting to try and figure out what's good you know how how all of this is being put together but when you get into this uh, information this is this is what i was referring to when we were opening in in that there is a lot here and there are several derivatives so from this article what i'm seeing is that the three main uh constituents that they studied at in at this time this at was this time this yeah, was so, 2014 so uh this was published in 2013 2013 so this is early in the process yes so we were i mean we were still being kind of introduced to these cathinone derivatives at this time the main focus was uh, uh a, a chemical called mdpv um, I'm not even going to work to pronounce the name <laughs> of that. Um, there's another one called uh, methadrone, M-E-P-H-E-D-R-O-N-E. And then another one called methylone, M-E-T-H-Y-L-O-N-E. That methadrone, methadrone is the one that I have mispronounced before. I think I said it was something methaphone, <laughs> but, but that's the one I was referring to. So methadrone. So those were the three main uh, uh, molecules that they were looking at in this study. And the main things that they wanted to look at were, number one, what is the main mechanism of action of MDPV? This was the kind of quote-unquote, uh, um, you know, uh, example, type and cast of, of uh, uh, these synthetic cathinones. And then they wanted to kind of cross-reference those with these other two molecules that we've mentioned. And compare those with cocaine exactly. and amphetamines. Exactly. Because they did this to all of these molecules, yes. right? They, they even talked about how they got amphetamine and cocaine from different labs. Yeah. And they had to, you know, the provenance of that was <laughs> described in the article, which I liked. So, and then what they did is they, they not only looked at, they, they did this in, in uh, mouse models, they looked at the uptake uh, as well as um, the receptor activity uh, in reference to amphetamine and cocaine. Um, and then they also looked at different uh, phenotypic presentations or, or you know, uh, agitation and movements and stirring and things like that, as well as cardiac uh, presentations. So with blood pressure, hypertension, uh, and heart rate. All in mouse models. Just all be, in mouse models. All, just all in mouse models, just to be clear. Okay. So what they found, the, the and I'll, we'll synthesize these results down because like, like you said, Dr. Randy, this is a, a very comprehensive article. What the results were, were, were very interesting. So our chief molecule, MDPV, actually looks like it acts more like cocaine uh, at the dopamine and norepinephrine uh, transporters. It's an inhibitor as opposed to working like amphetamines, which is more of a uh, transport facilitator. Or a transport substrate, I think, was exactly. the language they used. Yeah. yeah. So, so also, I'll add, much less so at the CERT, right, at the uh, serotonin transporter. And, and so, so all three of the transporters, they refer to this as being a catecholamine-specific molecule. Yeah. MDPV, catecholamine specific, transporter specific, right? Yeah. Whereas the other molecules, amphetamine, methadrone, and methylone, different. 
Yes, so they, they act, it was saying that they act more similarly in terms of, uh, of their mechanism. So where, uh, where amphetamine might work on the DAP receptors or NVMAT2, if we're remembering all of our mechanisms of actions okay. from step one, um, this methadrone and methylone, these other two derivatives of, uh, of our bath salts, work much more similarly to amphetamines. Um, some, some striking contrasts here too, again with our chief molecule MDPV, I, I would say maybe this might be one of the take home messages is that MDPV at the DAT and NET receptors is well over 10 times more powerful or uh, more, uh, how do you more want to say, more potent. More dopamine causing in, in this, the cleft. Yeah, than, than cocaine is. So you can- 50 times for Dat. 50 times for dat and uh, and 10 times for, for the, net for net yeah so you can see the just sheer power that this one molecule has as opposed to something that uh, f frankly has been readily available for some time and and fairly accessible you have this other kind of monstrous molecule that's making its way onto the scene that could cause a, a lot of different issues and I think this starts to speak to the complexity of when we talk about how do you manage a certain patient. MDPV has a different effects on the transporter and the, the dopamine and the norepinephrine and the sertraline, or I'm sorry, sertraline, serotonin transporters mm -hmm. than do some of the other molecules. Yeah. And so you can't, you can't say, well, I have to always watch out for a hypertensive or an autonomic Presentation, presentation in exactly. the in the emergency room. It, it might be one that is more predominantly uh, dopaminergic, perhaps, where you have more psychosis, more agitation, Absolutely. rather than maybe the cardiac effects. If we're talking generally speaking, exactly. Right? Um, the bath salts that are being used are changing, right? So the Simmons article, fascinating article because <laughs> of the name, I think, dark. What was it? Dark Classics oh, yeah. in Chemical Neuroscience, something along those lines. This is the Simmons article. Um, talks about this history of CAT and the synthesis or the uh, production of cathinone or the presence of cathinone um, and how that was uh, rapidly turned into methcathinone mm -hmm. and you know, these synthetic uh, uh, molecules, the synthetic cathinones. He mentions, or she, I, I don't know, uh, the striking resemblance of cathinone to both amphetamines and MDMA, right? Which, which I think speaks about the differences sometimes. One being the connectedness molecule, the other one being the energy, you know, kind of molecule, and, yeah. and then these bath salts bridge those, those differences, I think, and that's, again, part of the difference in the presentation. And depending on where you substitute, so there's, uh, I think there's a, ring on the cathinone molecule and you can substitute alkyl, halogen, pyrolidinyl. Your guess is as good <laughs> as mine. Molecules and more and depending on what you substitute and where you substitute on the ring it seems like you get different kinds of uh, ratios of effect on the different transporters and potentially into the cell. Let's talk about um, 
first of all, it, it crosses the blood-brain barrier. These, uh, they're also called beta ketones, right? Mm -hmm. These uh, synthetic cathinones. Crosses very, very easily into the CNS. For some of these molecules we've talked about, they are um, catecholamine-specific mm -hmm. uh, transport reuptake inhibitors, I think is a reasonable way of saying that, sure. as I understand yeah. it. And then there's a group of these molecules then that act more like amphetamines. And, and they seem to increase the amount of dopamine that comes out of the cell in addition to stopping the reuptake, right? Yeah. We read before, or we talked about before, that amphetamines may be monoamine oxidase inhibitors of sorts. I haven't seen a lot of repeat of that since then. But what I did find in this article was that there are a lot of different theories about why there is that release of dopamine from the cell. Um, the theory we talked about last time was that it seems to reverse the transporter. Mm -hmm. Maybe, right? Maybe yeah. there's something about the vesicular changes where um, some of these bath salts, some of these cathinone, uh, synthetic cathinones, end up displacing uh, so much dopamine mm -hmm. that you change the gradient across the transporter and start pushing everything out of the cell. I don't know about that. Apparently, it's not entirely clear. There's some evidence that perhaps you have evoked potentials caused by these cathinones and amphetamines that cause uh, vesicular uh, fusion with the synapse and release of dopamine. Perhaps there's another mechanism that I couldn't quite track as well. <laughs> what am I missing in the story? I think you've summarized it very, very well. I, I think that if there's anything that we can take from this, it's that, number one, the mechanism of action of these synthetic cathinones is very convoluted. And number two, even with some of the, the drugs that we do understand, or I guess that we do have, even those mechanisms of actions are still being elucidated. I think the, the main fact that we can take from this is that these, these drugs are, are going to present in wildly different ways based off of how whatever concentration you have of whatever molecules uh, and that in those presentations it's our job as healthcare providers as you know uh, people in the community that are looking out for the health of our community uh, to to try and not only treat these symptoms but work to get down to kind of the base level of what can we do to help these people um, so getting back to, to your question uh, as I kind of digress, it's it's very convoluted in terms of understanding the nitty-gritty details of, of each of these mechanisms of actions. But on that physiologic level, on that on on the you know surface level, um, it can help guide where we go with our treatment and and what we can do to aid these people. First-line treatment consistently seemed to be benzodiazepines when some when a medication intervention was required. Yeah. There was a cautionary note about the use of antipsychotic medications mm -hmm. in one of the articles I read and another one of the articles they said essentially hey if it gets too far you if the psychosis is too much um, if the benzodiazepines are not slowing that down then antipsychotic medications are reasonable. I don't know what the truth is between those two because or, or what might be a better answer between those two. These are again experience experiences based on some data in the past using yeah. um, antipsychotics to settle down, some forms of intoxication going awry, and the general experience looks like people with with these problems showing up in the emergency room are generally managed with benzodiazepines and other supportive therapies. And I think the, the main reason to be a little bit more cautious about using antipsychotics and, and second, uh, second generation antipsychotics 
is that uh, one of the, the sequelae of these drugs is hyperthermia uh, and uh, even the possibility of seizure activity. And so some of these, uh, like Haldol, uh, I, or at least I noticed in, in some of my reading, Haldol, Geodon were two specific uh, drugs that they had mentioned that you should be very cautious about because of, of those factors. Now, I read a case report of a, of a, a man who presented to the emergency department uh, out of Italy that uh, had been using these medications for an extended period of time and had developed uh, some perse uh, per persecutory delusions and, and even some hallucinations. Um, in that situation, they were managing him with Haldol, but that was after uh, a chronic use and he wasn't acutely intoxicated. So I think that as you're looking at these clinical situations, I think that if the option, you come across one of these questions on the exam or uh, even even in, in an acute setting from my very limited you know, perspective, um, using benzodiazepines as your first line drug treatment is gonna be standard therapy. I think that like you had mentioned, if all bets are off, we're having difficulties, you know, controlling some psychotic features or, or just some or agitation. agitation. Yeah. I think that, that uh, using Haldol to, to help out is cautionary, but would be appropriate. This is all changing. Yes. <laughs> we, we, we talked about three drugs that are sort of around, but not the way they were when they were studied. Yeah. There was a report put out by the National Laboratory Forensic System. I didn't know about this until this morning. There's a group of affiliated labs that work together. Um, I think it's primarily forensics related, but this was something that was used in some of the data that came out in the Simmons article. So the, the frequency of um, mephedrone and methyl methylone mm -hmm. and, and MDPV and all sorts of other metabolites. There's now 40-something that have been identified as of 2015, mm -hmm. 2015 to 2016. The report was covering the years of 2013 to 2015. So we're in, in the, I think that report had it in the 30s, but I think the number's higher now. I couldn't find the report that said where that, how you know that, but um, the alpha PVP, mm -hmm. ethylone, and methylone comprise the three most commonly used synthetic cathinones now, and MDPV and mephedrone are nowhere to be found in that list. Yeah, these are starting to fall out of favor, it sounds like. My sense was these were more like um, MDMA and less like amphetamines. Um, from, again, a very cursory you know, uh, perspective, I think this was a part of the Prosser article that I, I might not have been able to delve into as deeply as well. I think it was supporting this. Um, is that, uh, that it does tend to work more on, on that uh, MDMA axis, if you will. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and if I understand correctly, MDMA definitely has the greater affinity for the serotonin transporter, and what I can't recall at the moment is how it affects the internal machinery of the dopamine neurons. I can't recall if that causes the flood with dopamine or not. And maybe that's something we'll come to in another podcast. Who knows? I think that'd be a great idea. <laughs> so these are changing quickly. Part of that is how they're sold. Um, the Simmons article, Dark Classics in Chemical Neuroscience, uh, <laughs> mentioned that they're sold on the dark web. Mm -hmm. 
uh, you can purchase these things not with uh, American dollars, but with cryptocurrencies. Of course. And uh, sent privately in a, a non-specific UPS package, I suppose. I don't, I don't know how it's shipped. Um, so the evolution is inevitable. Mm -hmm. How this goes from here, anybody's guess. Drug-sniffing dogs, oddly enough, there are stories about that out there, can be taught sure. to find these synthetic cathinones. And it looks like maybe if you can smell one synthetic cathinone, you might be able to smell most of them. I don't know yet. There's still a lot to be found out with that. Um, but my takeaway would be that if you have a clinical presentation with agitation, and perhaps the classic triad that we talked about before, <laughs> uh, elevated blood pressure, um, hypertension, hypertension and, elevation, and elevation in temperature. Again, not impressive yeah. in these elevations, but present. Present. Um, and you're not entirely sure what's going on, drug screens come back negative, then bath salts are a real possibility. Getting into the idea of uh, the history and this helps you with that clinical presentation and, and making a clinical diagnosis. Absolutely. And, and one thing, um, again, I think as medical students that is pounded into us, or at least if it's not, it should be, it's the, the importance of a good history and a thorough physical exam. Uh, and I think that that's what can lead you to uh, a lot of our diagnoses, even ideally even without tests, but we use them uh, to confirm a lot of our suspicions. But how do we gain those suspicions? It's by our history and our physical exam. And so uh, I think that because we don't have any implemented testing, uh, drug screening that would pick up a lot of these derivatives because we're still working to nail down all of the different types of these molecules. Lots of them. Um, it's it would it's going to be imperative as you know as we move forward to be able to understand the sequelae, the the clinical picture. High yield for shelf exam, um, end of rotation exam, board exams. I think the answer is no <laughs> yeah. to yeah. this podcast, Correct. right? <laughs> so we'll put on this low yield for shelf exam. But gosh, I, I think the thing that I enjoyed most about this was it finally makes somewhat more sense why that mechanism of action between cocaine and amphetamines is so difficult for me to understand. And that is, it's not clear that it's fully locked down yet. There's exactly. a couple of really great hypotheses out there. It, it may be one, two, all of the above, none of the above. There's some confounding studies mm -hmm. on that. Um, the reality is cocaine more clearly blocks reuptake Amphetamines and some of the, the synthetic cathinones seem to block reuptake as transporters, mm -hmm. as transport molecules, and then also do something inside the cell that causes increased release of dopamine. Yeah. And that's, that's, I mean, I think I thought that was a pretty good, fun take home and just this idea of how how the community responded to these bath salts Absolutely. so quickly. A very fascinating story. One of my big takeaways was, uh, I know that during second year medical school, when we were getting into these uh, drugs of abuse more, um, especially in our psychiatry unit that we had, um, it was very difficult for our professors to kind of nail down a lot of this information, and frankly, rightfully so. And so it gave me an opportunity, as you had mentioned, to kind of dig into some of the details and see where the similarities are at and where there's the differences. And I, I feel like, as you've already hit on, understanding the mechanisms of actions of these drugs of abuse has been a huge benefit in helping me to understand how these things could present uh, and making sure that, uh, that I keep a broad 
kind of perspective, a broad differential diagnosis? Yeah, I think maybe at the end of the day, calling, you know, learning about the presentation and management of bath salts is sort of like grouping cocaine, amphetamines, and caffeine together and saying that we're going to talk about the management of stimulants. Yeah. Right? While we drink our uh, cold diet cokes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, so, so it's it's such a broad range yeah. that it's it's not really fair to say identification and treatment of uh, bath salts. It's probably more accurate to say introduction to bath salts and the broad range of effects that absolutely. that they have. Absolutely. Last word, Kim. Um, it's been uh, always has been a pleasure. Uh, I appreciate you giving me some license to you know to really delve into these topics I've I've enjoyed so. Um, I'm sure we'll have at least one more or maybe maybe two more uh, drugs of abuse that, that we'll be talking about. Uh, and so I look forward to being able to dig into some of the nitty-gritty research on those. So Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. We also, in a teaser, I think we have Rhett Dotson, who has been with us in a couple of podcasts mm-hmm. just prior to this. Uh, he is preparing to talk about the use of LSD, lysergic acid. Yeah. Psychedelics and treatment for PTSD. PTSD. And I think it's going to be awesome. Brett's an awesome student, and so it's going to be really, really cool to be able to see what he's got prepared for us. Yeah, so I think we'll have you involved in that one, and I think uh, you have another, what, week with me, roughly? Yeah, a week and a half or so. So we got plenty of time. We got plenty of time. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) These take so much time to prepare. All right, on that note, team out. Team out.